So last week we looked at V is for vocation in this uh, series we've been going through in the ABCs of Reformed Theology. And we saw what vocation is, that God calls us to love and serve our neighbors, both generally and specifically. Our work is not just meant to or used for making money for ourselves, to serve ourselves, but rather that it is one of the primary ways that God has given us and called us to love and serve our neighbors in this world to the glory of God. And tonight we'll finish our series looking at W is for worship. The topic of worship is a very fitting one for us to consider at the end of this year uh, because this is what we were made for. Uh, This is what we live for, to worship God, the one who has redeemed us. And so we'll start with this reading of the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, and I'll read just the first two uh, articles that are there. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. And then, in addition, we'll have our scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 29. I invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 29, where we read, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. This is referring to the event at Sinai. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So for the reading of God's word, may the Holy Spirit bless us tonight with insight, clarity, and greater understanding. Amen. Well, in a famous 
commencement speech, the former atheistic author, uh, the late David Foster Wallace, famously said this. It's very insightful. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, I'd actually think it, it applies to children as well, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life from, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Very insightful what David Foster Wallace is saying here, that we all worship something. Why? Because we were all made to worship. We find this in the scriptures. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. And so we have, each of us, we're born with this concept of eternity on our hearts, written therein, and we naturally long for things that are of eternal worth and value. A dear friend of mine wrote a very good book that I recommend to you all. Maybe we'll read it in the future. His name is Jonathan Cruz. This book titled, What Happens When We Worship? And he writes this, Humankind was made to worship. This sense of deity that we all have is known as the sensus divinitas. And we all have it. We all have something inside us that tells us there is something greater out there. And we owe him our worship. Cliche as it may sound and as it is, we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And the only way it can be filled is through worship. The problem is that we often try and fill up that emptiness with the wrong kind of worship. And so we were made for worship. We have that God-shaped heart, a hole in our heart. We all long to give our attention and adoration to things that we hope are worthy of our praise. And that's what worship is. It is giving the affections of our heart to something by some form of expression of song or prayer or listening attentively, giving our heart's attention to it. And we usually structure our lives around what we worship, what we want, what we desire. You know, we think of false gods and the idols in the Old Testament, and we think of those little statues. But that's not all that false gods are. They are actually anything in our current life, our day-to-day life, that we set our adoring affection upon to find some kind of comfort or hope or strength from that thing. The object of your worship can be anything that has assumed the place of God in your heart. It could be things like money or your career, your own children, right? Or your own family, your country or political freedom, your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, or things in nature like the sun, the moon, or the stars. Now, those things can be false gods, but are any of those things bad in and of themselves? No, they're they're not. But are they worthy of our worship? 
In other words, are any of those things worthy enough to structure our whole lives around them, placing all of our hopes and aspirations in them alone? No, none of those things are. You know, interestingly, the term worship comes from the Old English, where Skype, uh, where Skype, and it used to be a compound word, therefore of worth, worth, plus the suffix ship, right? So it is tied to the concept of worth. To worship, therefore, is to acknowledge the worthiness of something, to acknowledge its worth and value. And so as David Wallace said, he was right. What matters is not whether we worship something, but whether the thing that we are worshiping is truly truly worthy of our worship, truly worthy of our reverence and awe. And often we don't ask ourselves that question. Instead, we foolishly worship all kinds of things that are put before us or that fall before us in life. And it is folly, is foolish to worship things that are not sufficiently worthy of our acknowledgement and adoration. It's foolish to build your life and everything around, everything of your life around something that is not worthy of it. And yet we, we do that so often. Like C.S. Lewis has famously said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And that's exactly what we're prone to do, right? We're prone to be easily pleased with things that are not worthy of our heart's affection. Our hearts are, as Calvin famously said, idol factories. We're constantly, we're constantly producing in our hearts and creating the new things to love and to adore, to cherish and cling to, to find hope and purpose in life. And so we do that. We worship all kinds of things. But the question is, what is worthy of our praise? What is worthy of our attention? What is worthy of building our whole lives around? What can we worship without ending up feeling empty, guilty, and wanting more and more and more? What can we worship that won't eat us alive, that won't leave us to die a million deaths of emptiness, searching for more and more? Well, the only thing worthy of our heart's worship is God himself. And this is, in fact, our design purpose. As the Westminster Divine said, we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the book of Revelation, we read that the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he is worthy of our worship. Revelation 4, 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God, we find, is our king and he is worthy of our adoration and praise for his creation of all things and for sustaining all things by his power. But that is not all. Revelation 5, the next chapter, verse 9 through 13, says this of Jesus Christ, Worthy are you, speaking of the Son, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth then I looked and I heard around the throne and 
the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so we we see there that God is worthy of our adoration and our praise. Why? For his not only creating all things, but also for his redeeming love, for the beauty of his sacrificial love, we owe Christ all glory and honor forever and ever. He alone is worthy. He alone is what our hearts were made to worship. And he alone can fill us with the peace and joy that is unending. And he alone grants us the rest and satisfaction that we all so long for in life. After spending years of his youth chasing after the best things that this world has to offer in every area of life, just think of that, just trying, going about life, trying to find the greatest pleasure, the greatest thing that exists in life. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes says he did that. And at the end of it all, he says, it's all vanity. It's all meaninglessness, chasing after the, the, the wind. He says, the end of the matter is this, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man, there. This is the one thing that is worthy of our worship and allegiance. Nothing in the created world will do. Nothing else will fit and fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. Only the creator is worthy, for only God is full of boundless and bottomless compassion and infinite beauty. He is full of love, mercy, grace, truth and holy beauty, he alone is worthy of our praise. Now, similarly, like the author of Ecclesiastes, after years of chasing the pleasures of life, the fourth century pastor, Augustine, finally learned and prayed to God this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. He learned it as well that ultimately we were created for God and we must learn to rest in him and worship him alone. So if that's the case, if we were made for God to worship him, why is it that we are caught up in the worship of other things that are not worthy, that are worthless in comparison to God? Well, I think it's because all good things that we find in life, they are reflections of the good creator himself. We see beauty and what do we want to do? We want to praise it, right? Giving it worship when in fact we should be giving the creator worship. Think of this. It would be ridiculous, right? To stand in front of a painting, a masterpiece in a museum and to praise the painting itself while ignoring the painter. That's foolish. So too, it is ridiculous to praise all the good gifts that we have in this life while ignoring God, our father, from whom every good and perfect blessing flows. So we must give God, our creator, the praise. And that is, that's what's so ridiculous about the nature of sin, that we worship created things instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Unfortunately, God's fortune doesn't just favor the brave in life. He delights to favor brash and blatant sinners like us who worship all the wrong things. 
And so for that, for us, those who have been redeemed in Christ by grace alone, God has given us his spirit. And by his spirit, he is renewing our hearts and redirecting our hearts to worship God more and more instead of other things. But of course, we can all confess and admit that that's still a struggle and ongoing battle that wages within us. As Paul says in Galatians, the spirit within us wages war with our flesh. It's still within us, that sinful flesh and its desires and our flesh is still kicking and screaming in a sense. It wants to worship idols instead of God. But slowly and surely the Spirit is teaching us to worship Jesus or worship as Jesus taught us to worship God in spirit and in truth. And not only do we have the idols of our heart that distort our worship of God, but also our flesh does not want to worship God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. You know, sometimes when I play games with my sons, uh, we have board games, tons of them. Uh, well, we read the instructions, right? And I uh, explain the rules to my boys. But then when we start to play the game, they're still young. And what do they want to do? They want to change the rules of the game. Why do they want to do that? Because they want to play according to their own way so that they ensure their own victory, right? Uh, they want to tailor the game exactly to fit their own desires. Well, this is what we do with worship as well. God has set the rules, ordering our worship of him. He has given us instructions in his word, but our flesh likes to change those instructions. Our flesh wants to worship God according to our own wills, our own passions. When we make worship of God to fit our own preferences and desires, whom are we actually worshiping? When worship services are designed to please the worshipers, the attendees, and make them feel good, if that's the ultimate purpose, then we aren't really worshiping God, are we? We're worshiping our own emotions, our own feelings. Now, does that mean that God wants us to have dry and stale worship services? No, by no means. He wants wholehearted, embodied worship, and he wants all of our affections and joyous sounds of praise. We should be singing with gusto. We should be singing to the praise and glory of God each week, belting it out, singing it with all our hearts, right? As the Westminster Divine said, God is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served. How? With all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. So clearly he doesn't want stale or stagnant worship by no means but that doesn't mean that we can give god any kind of worship that just according to what we want that we think will ignite our passions and emotions god wants us to worship him in the way that he has prescribed in his word as the westminster divine said and we read the acceptable way of worshiping the true god is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So this idea that God himself prescribes how he wants to be worshipped comes from God's word. We read in Hebrews twelve twenty eight, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The idea is not that worship would be acceptable to us or to the average person on the street, no, but acceptable to God. That implies that there are kinds and ways of worship that are not 
acceptable to God, that are not pleasing to him. And this call for acceptable worship with the affirmation at the end that God is a consuming fire should make us think of the Old Testament story in Leviticus 10, verse 1 through 2, where we we read this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so the sons of the high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, they each took his census and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. What did they do? They offered to God unauthorized fire. It was not what God had commanded. It was strange. It was according to their own preferences, their own desires, not according to God's word. And so that fire came down from heaven to consume them. A clear indication, evidence, proof that God did not accept their worship, no matter how heartfelt it was. Now, that was not the matter. The problem was that it was unauthorized. It was not commanded by God in his word. Now, thankfully, we worship God, who still is a consuming fire, but through the mediation of Christ. Right, whose blood speaks a better word, a word of mercy and grace that protects us from the fact that God is a consuming fire, protects us from God's holy justice. But that doesn't mean that we can just give God any kind of worship that we want. We are still called to offer God worship that is acceptable to him according to his word. And so what is acceptable worship to God? Well, there are essential elements of corporate worship that are prescribed for us by God in his word. We can find those in our church order that we have, that we hold to in Article 38, where it says, Worship services shall be conducted according to the principles taught in God's word, namely that the preaching of the word have the central place, that confessions of sin be made, praise and thanksgiving and song and prayer be given, and gifts of gratitude be offered. So there we have it. The specifics of corporate worship, the must-haves, the what of worship. What do we do? What are we offering to God? But it does not say how we must conduct them, in what manner. So how, what must we present those things to God in worship? Well, we find different passages in scripture, such as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fourteen forty, but all things should be done decently and in order. Jokingly, many say that that's the favorite favorite passage of Presbyterians. All things should be done decently and in order. But it shows us that there should be an intentional order, a consistency to what we do and offer God in worship. Worship should not be a chaotic hodgepodge of spontaneous madness. And that's why we have Each week, an order of worship and a consistency to it. And Reformed churches like ours have that order which is shaped even by the early church itself and their worship of God. And it's structured off the covenant of grace as well. We find the early church in Acts 2, 42, committed to the very same elements that we just read from the church order. uh, And they had a, a certain consistency in that. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So there, there are those core elements of worship. And most scholars conclude that the early church basically followed the order of worship, the structure 
that existed in the Jewish synagogues of the day. And so they carried that over and continued worshiping God through the mediation of Christ. And the reformers in the 16th century sought to purify the church in, in its ways of worship, going back to those original apostolic days. And so our worship, we find, should be done decently and in order. But that's not all. We read in Hebrews 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So that's telling us how we ought to do it as well. We should be filled with gratitude, with reverence and awe, respecting God for who he is and what he's done. And lastly, we should worship God with love's holy desire. And we see this often in the Psalms, like Psalm 73, 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those are poetic words of worship. What does David realize? Well, he realized that nothing in heaven above nor on earth below is worthy of his heart's full attention and adoration. He learned to seek and desire God and him alone above all else because God's strength and God himself is his enduring portion, enduring portion for sinners like us. He alone is worthy of all our worship. And so he had that holy desire of love to seek God and seek him out all the more. And so loved ones, let us give God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit three in one acceptable worship with reverence and awe, with grateful hearts, with love's holy desire, for God alone is worthy. And unlike other lesser things in life that we are so prone to worship, worshiping God will not eat you alive. It will make you alive. He will renew you in your strength day by day, and he will raise you up on the last day in resurrected life. If you tap real meaning in life from God himself in worship, then you will have enough. Your portion will be forever. And as we worship God, we will live not a million deaths, but a million lives in glory for his worthiness. His worthiness will never fade. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your worthiness. And we ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins for worshiping all other things that are not worth our attention, that are not worth our praise. Lord, we ask that you would direct our hearts and renew us more and more to worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we ask that you would draw us ever more to you by your worthiness. Reveal yourself more to us in your beauty, your glory, your majesty, your mercy, and grace. And in that sense, woo us in your love that we, like David, might find in you our portion and our strength forever and desire you above all else. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.